welcome to your weekly dose of Worldly. I'm Zach Beecham here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hello. So as you probably know, Tucker Carlson is a Fox News host uh, with a habit of making some racially controversial statements. For months, he's been telling a pretty inaccurate story about white farmers in South Africa being brutally murdered and losing their land. South Africa is a diverse country, but the South African government would like to make it much less diverse. An embattled minority of farmers, mostly Afrikaans-speaking, is being targeted in a wave of barbaric and horrifying murders. But instead of protecting them, the government just passed a law allowing it to seize their farms without any compensation based purely on their ethnicity and distribute those farms to more favored groups. So this isn't quite right, and we'll dig into the reasons why in a second. But first, Jen, you brought this up as a possible worldly segment during our planning meetings earlier this week. And we were all like, that's interesting, but maybe off the news cycle. Yeah. And then on Wednesday night, President Trump tweeted this, quote, I have asked Secretary of State Pompeo to closely study the South Africa land and farm seizures and appropriations and the large-scale killing of farmers. And then he quotes, South African government is now seizing land from white farmers at Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Okay, so you were right that we should have been paying attention to this because now the president is tweeting about it. But before we talk about Trump and his role in all of this, let's go back to Tucker Carlson and the actual story in South Africa. So what is happening with the farmers and their land? Right. So this has become a far-right talking point among white nationalists and the alt-right and neo-Nazi groups. But it actually has to do with a very real and very fraught issue that's going on right now in South Africa. So basically, for nearly 50 years, starting in the late 1940s, black Africans who make up the majority of South Africa's population were subjected to this official institutionalized government policy of political and economic discrimination and racial segregation that's known as apartheid. Most people have probably at least heard that word. Among many of the other horrific infringements on their basic rights, black South Africans were legally barred from living on, operating businesses in, or even owning land in vast swaths of the country that were set aside for whites only. This was official government policy of whites-only land ownership. So apartheid falls then in the early 90s, and now there's this problem, right? Yeah, so apartheid ends in 1994, and right after that, they begin programs of land reform to try to kind of fix this racial disparity. Because at the time that it ended, nearly 90% of all land in the country was owned by whites, despite the fact that they only made up 10% of the population. So the government over time, you know, in the past nearly 25 years, has tried to kind of do various programs to kind of redistribute the land. It hasn't really worked so well. It hasn't gone very quickly. And today, it's still, still like a massive disparity. And people are getting really tired of waiting. The government has decided to start doing full-scale land expropriation. They passed this bill saying that they can take land from white farmers if they pay a fair market price, right? Like, they're not going to steal your land for no money, except that even that went too slowly. And so now they are literally, like, on the verge of pushing through a plan that will actually take land from white farmers, and they don't have to pay them any money. So was that the moment this became, I'm assuming this whole issue was racially charged from the start. Right. But was that sort of the moment that it became a massive sort of cost celeb on the right and among white nationalists? Absolutely, Alex. And 
there's also this kind of actual violence piece of it, too. I, I want to be clear. So there's kind of two pieces. There's the land, like the very real land expropriation that's going on, which is, again, controversial. But there's also, historically, because of the fact that white people owned massive tracts of land and were very wealthy, there have historically been attacks and including murders on white farmers, in part because they're just there and they're wealthy and often really isolated, so they make attractive targets. But also, there's definitely been, at least in some of the cases, a racially tinged kind of aspect to it, revenge, things like that. So so to be clear, like, this is real in the sense that there are white farmers being murdered by black South Africans. Yes, but what Tucker Carlson is saying is that there is a widespread campaign of attacks and killings on white farmers. That is patently false. There is zero evidence when you look at the data and experts from multiple different outlets and researchers have looked closely at the data and found that there's no evidence whatsoever that there is widespread killing of white farmers. There have been attacks. However, if you actually look at the data, it seems that they're on the decline, like dramatically. So this is a, this is a really, really important distinction. The right. reason being that it is one thing to say South Africa is struggling with issues of racial conflict and of the distribution of land, and and that's reasonable. It is another thing to say a black-dominated government is persecuting a white minority as a matter of official policy, which is the way that Trump framed it in his tweet and the framing that he got from watching Tucker Carlson, a framing that really originates with the far, far right in the United States, like real hardcore white nationalists. Well, it actually, you're right. I mean, that's where it comes from. That's where, like, Tucker Carlson got it. At least we think, anyway. Right. But it actually originated closer to the source. There's this really small South African lobbying group that advocates for the rights of a subgroup of the white minority that speaks Afrikaans. So this is the non-English-speaking group of white people in South Africa. And this group has been pushing this narrative hard on social media. Uh, They have their own actual media network. They travel all over the world to Washington, to Paris, to London, to talk to political leaders, to talk to influential figures and try to convince them that there's this huge campaign of persecution and widespread killing, rape, murder of white farmers as part of this white genocide. And that is how they frame it. And that has been picked up by the kind of global far-right coalition of white nationalists in Europe and in the United States. Well, and- they're finding an audience for a specific reason, which is there are people looking for ex- specific examples of possibly white persecution in the sense that right throughout world history, white people have had all this privilege and have basically led everything. And now that others are starting to get rights and be parts of governments and whatnot, now there's uh, at least a subgroup backlash against it. And that's the really important point here. There's a global constituency of various different kinds of far-right movements in the United States, Europe, and Southern Africa. The premise of all of these movements, the thing they share in common, is this idea that in the modern world, whites are increasingly persecuted, that mass immigration, the civil rights movement in the United States, the end of apartheid in South Africa weren't advancements for people of color. They were targeted campaigns 
against whites. And so you have this kind of global racist consciousness. And this isn't just like a theoretical thing, right? This isn't just people tweeting or people making videos and documentaries or news coverage. This has real world consequences. Dylan Roof, who perpetrated the mass shooting of a black church in Charleston, subscribed to this idea of white persecution. And and I want to be clear, Trump doesn't live in the same white nationalist fever swamps that Dylan Roof did. But there's a crucial laundering step that happens from the far right to the president, and that's Fox News. Tucker Carlson, as our colleague Carlos Maza has shown in a really excellent video, is the preferred TV host of white nationalists around the country because he takes the ideas that they espouse and rearticulates them in a way that's more palatable to the conservative mainstream. And Laura Ingram, another Fox host, does some similar stuff sometimes. And it's worrying that the president, who consumes so much goddamn media and so much goddamn Fox News specifically, is getting this kind of alt-light messaging. Right, exactly. And the, I just want to say The Guardian's Jason Wilson had this really great piece recently where he actually tracked kind of the the through line of how this got from this really obscure fringe, far-right extremist conspiracy theory in the deepest, darkest, seediest recesses of the internet, and how it went through and got into the alt-right and Richard Spencer and his website and these more kind of American Renaissance alt-right podcasts, then got picked up by Breitbart and some more prominent outlets. RT, Russia Today, the Russian government-funded propaganda outlet, has also done a lot of coverage on this, pushing the same kind of narrative. And then it gradually made its way to, like, Ann Coulter uh, tweeted about this, saying that the only real refugees are white farmers in South Africa who are being murdered. That's the only valid refugee. And then, again, from Ann Coulter, you see it get to Fox News and then to Donald Trump. Which leads to kind of, if Trump saw this on Fox News and wanted to know more about the issue, right? Sure, he could ask the State Department, he could ask U.S. intelligence agencies, learn about it in private, and then find out what's actually happening. Instead, he hears about it, possibly tells Pompeo in private, and then goes, screw it, I'm going to tweet it out. Right! And, And tweets out false information, tweets out that this is now an issue on his mind, And this is a complete breakdown of just the process, right? And he's not learning the information, and he's tweeting out something racist. And and nor is this like an isolated—obviously not an isolated incident. Trump does this all the time. But I mean in the sense that it may not be self-contained. Thursday morning, the South African government tweeted something denying Trump's claim. So now you have something that started as a racist talking point, made its way to Fox News, became the official position of the president of the United States, and now has created an international incident between the United States and the South African government. Like, the fact that this is the way that the world we live in right now operates is just mind-boggling to me. Right, and I I have a piece up on the site uh, on Vox.com. Jen was up until 4 a.m. writing it. It was really good, and you should read it. Thank you very much. But I mentioned this in the piece that what is even the point of the CIA, right? Like, what is the point of this huge foreign policy bureaucracy that we have? And there is a good point, which is to provide the president and the United States government with the best information possible. If he's just going to throw that right out the fucking window and decide to run all of U.S. foreign policy based on fucking Fox News, we're in serious trouble. There is a case to make that Fox News is more influential than the CIA. And on that depressing note, uh, we're going to end our main segment. Now, stay tuned for Elsewhere, where we're going to discuss a really important piece of news that flew under the radar.
If you love Worldly, you'll love Deep Dish on Global Affairs, a weekly podcast that goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. Deep Dish covers timely world news and important but underreported stories. That means everything from Obama's NATO ambassador discussing the implications of Trump-Putin summits to the Armenian prime minister calling in real time to talk about the country's revolution on air. Subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. If you haven't watched Vox's new show on Netflix, this is the week to start. The show is called Explain, and every episode is a 15 to 20 minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, that's the female orgasm explained. So this episode is going to explore the basic question. Why are many of us so confused about the female orgasm? A U.S. study even shows that 95% of straight men say they regularly orgasm during sex, compared to 65% of straight women. Yet for gay women, that number was 86. And if you're curious what the human brain looks like during orgasm, or what the female orgasm feels like, or even what the G-spot really is, then you should watch this episode. So go watch it on Netflix. Search for Explained or for Vox or go to netflix.com slash explained. For elsewhere, we're going to talk cyber, not in the sense that we used to use it back in the AOL chat rooms of my youth, but in terms of the ways that countries use the internet to wage a kind of political warfare against their enemies. I like to call it the cyber. Uh, So on Sunday, National Security Advisor John Bolton went on ABC News and the anchor brought up cyber attacks. President Trump tweeted this weekend that all of the fools that are so focused on looking only at Russia should start also looking in another direction, China. Just to be clear, have you seen any credible evidence that the Chinese meddled in our elections in the past or are doing so now? Well, I can say definitively that it's a sufficient national security concern about Chinese meddling, Iranian meddling, and North Korean meddling that we're taking steps to try and prevent it. Now, it's very interesting that Bolton mentioned Iran there. And the reason why is just a few days after the interview, we found out that Iran had been using Facebook and Twitter as part of a coordinated disinformation campaign targeting the United States and American politics. So, Alex, you heard about this. Why don't you start us off and explain what the hell is going on with Iran? Sure. So, most importantly, my AOL name was Freaky Specs 1212. Oh, my God. Yes. Jesus. I know. I was very sad kid. (laughs) Freaky specs. Okay, sorry. Go on. Talk about Iran. (laughs) Um, So actually, uh, Facebook found and then scrapped hundreds of accounts and pages that were put on, some starting in 2013, specifically to just kind of meddle and change people's minds about myriad subjects. Uh, Many of these pages came from Iran. Some came from Russian intelligence agencies. And this is kind of proves Bolton point that when it comes to messing with the electorate and information, that Iran is also a culprit as we think about when we think about Russia. Right. Like these Iranian accounts, these are fake accounts that were pushing out very specific like talking points that the Iranian government likes to push out. So pro-Palestinian themes, uh, stories about how Saudi Arabia is so bad and evil. What's interesting is they also had stuff about American politics. So not just like politics in the Middle East, which, you know, okay, yeah, that would make sense, right? Like, you're going to, the Iranian government, you're going to push out stuff like that. But one of these fake Iranian accounts actually slammed a California GOP candidate for being a Holocaust denier, an anti-Semite, which, just to be clear, that's a bit rich coming from Iran, which has a bit of a rough history in terms of, you know, straight-up Holocaust denial. It's kind of the official position of the Iranian government that the Holocaust may not have happened. A bit, it's, yeah. it's questionable at best to hear them doing that. Uh, and so I just, I don't, what was the point? Like, why would you do this if you were Iran? 
So there are a couple of theories, right? We don't really know. One could be, most recently, they might be doing this because we pulled out of the Iran deal in May, the Iran nuclear deal. And so Iran really wanted the U.S. to stay in it. And by virtue of Trump pulling out, now a lot of these attacks are anti-Trump. Right. That's the thing. We should have mentioned some of these accounts are pro-Bernie. These are like fake Bernie bro accounts slamming Trump in part for things like foreign policy. Right, so it could be hurting him politically, but going back to maybe even 2013, this could simply be, right, Iran is not America's friend, and so sowing discord and false information and making the public less informed, really, on things is sort of a, a very simple, easy way to cause problems. But, but it's easy to be anti-Trump and to, you know, anti-Saudi just to push the general Iranian national interest line, but it's a different thing to, as Jen was just talking about, stand up pro-Bernie accounts, right? That is a very specific intervention in American politics. And I I don't fully grasp, and I, I don't know if anyone does, maybe no, you two have theories, why Iran would pick that line to go after. Well, I think it actually has to go back to the very beginning of the segment, which is John Bolton in part. So John Bolton and several other people within Trump's cabinet and administration are very, very hawkish on Iran. John Bolton himself has openly advocated for regime change. Some people even think we should launch a full-scale war in Iran or try to actively topple the government. And so if you're Iran and you're looking at this, you're like, okay, so the Trump administration is really hawkish. There's a chance that these people could start war with my country. Who can I support on the other side who might be a good kind of bulwark or might challenge the Trump administration? Okay, Bernie, right? So looking and saying, oh, I'm going to support Bernie versus people like Donald Trump because Bernie's not going to be as hawkish on Iran. He's not the kind of guy that's super excited about going out and starting wars in the Middle East. So it makes sense from like a strategic perspective that Iran would want to do these kind of specific targeted fake accounts, not just about foreign policy, but also about U.S. domestic policy and supporting people that are a challenge to Trump. We've also been using some pretty sophisticated cyber attacks against Iran. Yeah, that's another good right? point. So like this thing called Stuxnet, it, it basically messed with Iran's centrifuges, which dealt with this nuclear program. And so by doing so, Iran really started to hack back in a sense. I mean, going after our banking sector, they effectively shut down like J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank of America for a while. They even hacked a very small dam. So like th there's reasons why Iran is angry at the United States and hacking our infrastructure and our, and our private businesses. But Zach, to your point, like this very specific targeted case, I'm a little also less clear about why. Well, it seems to me to be in part, I mean, obviously some of these accounts were older going back to 2013, but in, in this recent activity that it's aping the Russian interference in right. the 2016 election. Because right? it worked. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, see, that's the thing that worries me, right, is that Russia set a precedent that what you can do is you can exploit fundamental divisions inside the American political system, partisan divides that are independent of the tech platforms, but the tech platforms can exacerbate, and use them to push your agenda obliquely in American politics. And I, I don't see any evidence that the United States has done anything since the 2016 election to be able to deal with the kind of problems that they pointed out. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we've done some things in private, but I agree. In public, there's been no push, especially from up top, right, from Trump, like, to really—I mean, his own officials are coming out saying, like, we've really heard nothing from the president. We've taken really few measures. I mean, they say they've doing, they're doing some things. Right, U.S. So, Cyber Command has said, like, we don't really know what the president wants, so we're right. just going to— 
do some stuff ourselves, I guess. Yeah, and, and that's that's normal and expected, but like, let's be clear, sort of the top level thing here is America's extremely vulnerable to cyber attacks, whether it be on our infrastructure, our companies, uh, or our election. We are, these other four countries that Bolton mentioned, China, North Korea, Iran, Russia, they are equal peers to us in cyberspace, and they are now learning, especially since 2016, how to mess with us in, on sort of just this one targeted election base. Right, but there's a technical fix, or at least there can be technical defenses for a lot of the things you're talking about, for banking infrastructure, electricity dams, the vital stuff, right? Like that you can protect somewhat. But you can't, at least in a liberal democracy, you can't change the way that people talk about politics. You right. can't legislate against hardcore partisan identification. And that's what these social media attacks are picking up on. They're amplifying divides that exist independent of the state and tech companies and the government can't fix, right? And when you get tech people talking honestly about this, that's what terrifies them, is that their platforms are host to things that are doing damage to American democracy concretely and are exploited by foreign enemies. And there's nothing they can do to fix it. There's nothing at all that they can do. Right. I mean, to be fair, they did just take down over 600 fake accounts. So they're trying. But, I mean, 600 accounts in the broader, like, massive ocean of how many accounts there are on Facebook and Twitter, it's just a drop in the bucket. How many users are there on Facebook? Over 2 billion? Something a like lot. That. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. And so 600, that's great. I'm glad that there are 600 fewer fake Iranian and Russian accounts. But God only knows how many more are out there. The only defense is people can distinguish fake news from real news. or right. I mean, I, you can totally self-identify with certain groups or certain candidates and join those groups and amplify those messages. That's fine. But the, the really only defense here, as you were saying, Zach, in a liberal democracy is people see information and go, I know that's bogus. I, I just don't see any evidence that we're educating ourselves or moving really even in a more sophisticated way towards that moment. And on yet another depressing note, we're going to leave you this week. Sorry for being such a downer, but sometimes the world is grim and it's dark and it's hard, but... Also, dogs and cats exist, so that's that's great, right? Me too. We do, we do love our animals Ooh. on the Worldly Podcast. We can't put photos of them in our descriptions, but maybe we'll try to tweet some out. Shout out to the pets. Anyway, Anyway, we'd like to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who especially helped us put together a South Africa episode on short notice, our other producer, Jillian Weinberger, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, and I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, review to our podcast on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else that you get your podcast fix. And from the whole Worldly team, goodbye and have a lovely week. Hi, Worldly fans. This is Amanda Clute, Eater's Editor-in-Chief, and I want to tell you about a new show that we just launched on PBS with Chef Marcus Samuelson. Every Tuesday, Marcus explores the food and culture of a different immigrant community across the United States, like the Arab-American community and their cuisine in Dearborn, Michigan, Vietnamese food in New Orleans, Haitian food in Miami, and the list goes on and on. I really like the show because I'm learning about new cultures and foods that I didn't know existed in the United States. So check out the show every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. on eater.com slash no passport required or on PBS.